Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about time about. for Mortgage Matters. Hi, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Mortgage Matters. Nice to be back with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice, nice to be joined by you. Yeah. I, I owe you all an apology. It's <laughs> okay. You know, it was probably two or three weeks prior. Dan and uh-huh. I stood out in the lobby and said, "It's a holiday weekend." Blah blah blah. Let's do a rerun. And I said, "Yeah." And then uh-huh. I made plans. <laughs> I suppose we should have. I should have yeah. firmed up and said, it's the holiday weekend, we're doing a rerun, right? But yeah, old, down in our, in here like 905, it's like, Old okay. Energizer Dan was right <laughs> was here. Like, <laughs> Autopilot. Yeah, yeah. It's what I do on Saturday as I come here. But we we pulled it off. We pulled it off, actually. Yeah. You texted me and you said, are you almost there? <laughs> At like 9.15 was when I saw the text. And I think it was somewhere around there that you sent it. And I was like, huh, two things are going on. One is Dan's got his flannel pajama bottoms on and he's just trying to freak me out right now. Or yeah. he's really sitting there. He's really sitting <laughs> And, and oh, I'm yeah. the worst person today uh, ever uh, so uh, then uh, we did but good. yeah so since i was hundreds of miles away i i tried to phone up the first few people that i knew could like uh-huh. get here to bail you out for at least the you know an hour and a half yeah and everyone was out of town yeah so <laughs> so it was the dan show that's all right it went well yeah, yeah. we did it we did it i just yeah. kind of dan would like bring up a subject and i'd kind of help with questions about that subject and interesting and we had some calls so it actually worked out but yeah yeah a braver man than i you also (laughs) have so dan now has under his belt and i just want to make sure this is known because this (laughs) i'm the talker you know dan's the Dan hops in, but I have the reputation to be in the talker. No, but Dan really? now has under his belt a solo show yeah. of an hour and now a two hour solo show. Yeah, that's true. I have yeah. neither. Uh, well, we got to get you in the club. <laughs> well, Dan, you want to go home right now? No, I'm good. I will like, follow you out of here. I, was like, I will. No. Be, Jim will be scrambling like, to find some way some to sort of thing. make these things make noise. Yeah. I will follow you out of here. I cannot do that. Yeah, uh, maybe it's just a mental block, but um, yeah. it was it was easier than I thought. Yeah, it once works. I got on a it roll, works. it was it was yeah. a piece of cake. We reviewed and you had how all your, yeah your things. We reviewed and, how people can can buy homes with without having to save hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's lots of lots of different ways. So those people who feel like they're being choked out of the market, they can they can squeeze their way in if they find the right loan program, find the right house. Mm-hmm. Stable enough to qualify. Yeah, we talked we about different programs, so we don't really ever get to talk about that much. For actually, all, felt like I ran out of time yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it was actually good. Do you want me to go? And then you no, <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine, right you can there, do Jason. This two hours, and <laughs> like you're fine. <laughs> yeah, could be like a a new thing where you just you just control it. It's your domain. I'm not afraid of it anymore. Okay, 
That's good. Yeah, I'm still terrified I've, I've of jumped that. off the high dive. I can do it again. Now. There's times <laughs> for me where you start emailing over there and I start panicking. Like I know he's not paying attention and I'm thinking I'm running out of uh, the next thing I'm going to say. And then I start freaking out yeah. just there. I did ask him. I said, you know, I'm I'm ready here. I'm ready to drag in that rerun. Just we got in the end. I no, thought we got it. We got it. We'll do it. We'll do it. So when we, we were it. texting and you did your like that, uh-huh. Dan just texts me back and just texts me. And this is how I read it. It goes, <laughs> dude. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, he is there. <laughs> He's there. And then I was thinking, you know <laughs> like, what? Worst case scenario, now that he knows this, yeah. Jim can probably just bail him out of the second hour. Yeah, we did. We know? did. We bailed him. No, we I, thought, I thought just by hitting something off. Oh, yeah. But man, no. I'm I'm incredibly impressed that you. <laughs> no, that you I think we that. actually had a call that we had to hold over yeah. the second hour. It was actually good. It worked out. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Covered a lot of ground. We got more ground to cover today. Yeah. So you had a conversation about this um, the sentiment out there of people feeling like they're uh, potentially not. If you don't get in quick, you it, like the bus is leaving. These yeah. values just keep going up and up. That seems to be the sentiment um, from some younger people that I know uh, that are looking to try to figure out how to buy a house. Or, or you know, I'm actually specifically thinking of a, a couple that's looking at buying a mixed-use property. But um, I, I've heard that from others as well. That it, it just it's back in I want to say 2003, four, five, younger. Families who were, you know, approaching that home buying age were feeling like, gosh, things are expensive here. And if I don't buy something now, I can't keep being a renter. I don't want to keep being a renter. Not that I can't be. I don't, I don't want to keep being a renter. If I don't buy something now, the opportunity is going to pass me by. Things are going to continue to go up and it's just going to be that much harder to buy something here and afford it. I need to do it now. And I feel like, you know, home values came down. Opportunities were everywhere. Um, opportunities are, are, it's slim right now. There's not a lot of inventory and I, and the sentiment that I'm hearing from some younger people who are, you know, starting families or thinking about starting families, wanting to settle here, create some stability here with housing. Um, they're starting to feel that way again. Hmm. They've been feeling that way. I should say it's been a few years now that they're feeling like I got to find something. Yeah. I, I see that sentiment with the folks that I work with. I mean, at any given time, I probably have 12 to 20 people or couples that are pre-qualified to look for a home. And so it's always, you know, I always like to find out how they're feeling. And and to be honest, most of the time they ask me, um, they'll kind of say something to the effect of, we're feeling like it's very difficult. How is it from your vantage point? And I tell them, yeah, it's a... This is not like sometimes somebody just steps in and gets so lucky. Pre-qualified on a Friday, look at a house on a Saturday, accepted offer on a Monday. Uh, sometimes. That's a really rare thing. Uh, some of these customers that that come in and, and want to do, you know, get pre-qualified and get in the house hunt. And they're very serious, by the way. I would suggest that most of the people that come to me are renters and their landlord has given them notice that they're selling the home, and so it's an opportunity for them to buy it, or they're asking them to move out because somebody's going to be moving in, either the owner or owner's family member, um, which I think is also just sort of a, 
you know, tells the tale of what the housing market's like. If you have like a, a kid or a cousin or an uncle that, um, you know, they get forced out of their house for some reason, for whatever reason, can't afford to buy or aren't able to buy, you might, you know, displace your tenant to get a roof over your family's head. Those We're seeing that kind of thing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then otherwise, you know, it's people that rent and they're just ready to get out and go do something. But usually there's a catalyst to it. And so you, and I'm bringing that up because I'm I'm suggesting that these people have a timeline. They want to get in the market. They need to find something now. They're like, okay, I got to make this happen by November one. And I tell those people, okay, you know, but you got to know it just might not fall into place. Um, and and kind of the last thing you want to do is is to just totally settle on a house. You know, you don't want to go make a half a million dollar investment in something that you're like, well, I had no other choice. I yeah. couldn't even find a rental. That's not a good spot to be coming from. And so for that reason, sometimes we see people that end up, you know, scrambling and staying with somebody or renting again while they, you know, kind of try to stay in that lane of buying something. But it it can be hard. It can take three, six, nine months to find a house. Uh, and so I try to share that with people that if that if if that's the course you end up on, don't be frustrated. Um, it you know it it's not uncommon. You might luck out. People do. I see people that get pre qualified, like I said, on a Friday and end up in a contract on a Monday. That's not the norm. The timing issue is one that that's something not to expand on because everything around here is typically a year long lease. Yeah. Whenever you're renting, you're signing a year-long lease. So, you know, people know, oh, my lease is coming up on such and such date. I need to find something there so I don't have to renew again. I mean, it, it seems like we're in the kind of rental market where your landlord should be kind of accommodating if you want to break your lease because you found something, you know, right at the halfway point that you can buy. Yeah. Um, because it's such a strong rental market, you could easily find a replacement. But, you know, it's something to consider is that sure. you're, you're, ob- you're contractually obligated to... To continue to pay rent on that place for you know until your period expires. That's an interesting thing, you know. As kind of a side conversation right here, but um, if you're in a lease and you need out of it, yeah, you're contractually obligated. But here's what the other half of that law says: the owner of the property or the manager of the property has to demonstrate a reasonable effort to get a new tenant. They can't just ah, Dan, you moved out. Shame on you. Your lease goes till May. So we're going to go ahead and, you know, we'll go ahead and turn the water off and just collect on this vacant house until May. It can't really do that. Hmm. You demonstrate some effort that you're attempting to release this place. And yeah, I can be responsible for the contractual rent until you do. And even some reasonable, my security deposit might go towards some reasonable marketing costs on your behalf. But that's one of the things that prevents a landlord from just being a total jerk to the tenant that you know is trying to to make something happen so and and like i said in this town are you going to have vacancy for very long so those things we see that quite a bit where somebody's like you know i went to my landlord we finally found a house and landlord says that of course i'm on the hook but if they can re-rent it we're good most of the time i hear that's shaping up just fine you know they we're not having a trouble getting new tenants in a place around here let me ask you, the folks that you're working with that are pre-qualified but haven't found something, are most of them looking at minimum down payment yeah. type of things, or are they, do they have Most cash? of them are minimum down payment people. They're looking for 35 to 5% down. Um, that's the majority of the first-time homebuyers that I'm seeing right now. Um, 
And by the way, five percent down on a five hundred thousand dollar house is twenty five grand. Still a lot of money. That's still a lot of money. And when you see somebody that's, you know, I mean, how many twenty year olds do you know that have set aside twenty five thousand bucks? Not too many. 25, 30 year olds. I mean, you got to be, you got to, you got to have been brought up with a saver's mentality and be probably have some pretty strong support behind you to be socking away that kind of cash. A lot of people, you know, either they start working, start saving, or you go to school and start going into debt. And then it just takes a while to scrape some money together. To be honest with you, a lot of the people that I see, even that come into refinance, don't have 25,000 bucks sitting in a bank account. I mean, you see a lot of loan files too. Some of these people, I know they got some money in their retirement account, but they got 1,800 bucks in their checking account. They're kind of like the working class poor. That's a pretty normal thing. So when I see somebody that's like, you know, for example, one of the couples that I'm working with right now, they're they're in their early 40s. They're first-time home buyers and um I think years ago you might have been wow, that's old. Like but you probably should have owned a home by then, but you know, in this case they both work for the school district. Um and it it's taken this long to kind of arrive at a spot where they can afford it and they've scraped together that, you know, 30 something thousand bucks that it's going to take to be down payment, closing costs and stuff. And um, kind of just how long it took them to save up to that place. We do also see um, about, it seems like about half of the transactions. And I've seen some things to suggest that nationally this is true as well. But about half of the transactions of first time home buyers include gift funds from a relative. And so that's really nice if you've got a relative that can say, you know, oh, you're such a, a great nephew or son or daughter. Here's 50 grand. You know, that, that's awesome. We do see that. Um, and, and it happens really surprising. It happens a lot to me. I mean, there was nobody in my family that was handing out any amount of thousands of dollars to somebody to, you know, hey, here, we're just want you to have this to go get you a good start. And I feel like for so I, it seems abnormal to me. I'm always surprised how often I see it um, or family members that are able to, you know, make some arrangement with them where they give them a money and sort of have a understood agreement that the the dad's now kind of invested in it. You know, it's maybe not written out that it's a loan or something, but if you ever sold it for windfall profits, you know, that maybe or maybe not, he says you owe him something. But um, so, yeah, the people that have some cash, it's a, it seems to me that it's a barbell effect. You yeah. got a bunch of people with nothing, and then we got a bunch of people that have like, oh, check, yeah, that's great. Your mom's giving you a hundred grand. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and so, yeah, that doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of people in the middle. We don't see a lot of people that walk in with 70,000 bucks in a bank account that they saved the hard way. Right. Um, but, you know, like you mentioned, and, and it sounds like you did a service last week by talking about this because uh, when polled, the average American, you know, kind of general public says the main reason that they're not going out to buy is that they haven't saved 20% down. Folks, I mean, do how much money are you putting a month away into your savings account? And I'm not talking your retirement account or the kids' um, college fund or your cafeteria plan at work, but your savings account. How much are you putting away a month there? If it's, I mean, if it's 500 bucks a month, congratulations, you're a good saver. 
So now you're doing six grand a year. If you're trying to save 20% for a house in town here, that's going to be a hundred grand at a minimum. So $6,000 a year you're going to be saving. What's that math? I mean, we're talking, that's going to take you. Catching a couple decades. Yeah, that's a long time. And by the time you finally get there, you're kind of like, you know, it's like trying to go up the down escalator. These home values keep going up. They're, you're now, when you set out 10 years ago to save that money, it was only a hundred grand you needed. Ten years later, now you need a hundred and forty grand. So, um, yeah, I really want to get that message out to people that you do not need twenty percent down, and it's not the norm to have twenty percent down on a first-time home purchase. Every, now, every loan program offers at least some five percent or less down. Yes. In fact, I didn't even cover jumbo loans. Jumbo loans also have a five yeah. percent minimum down payment option really every price point in the market has something where you can put five ish percent down or and in some cases less um you know the second thing that people disqualify themselves for about a, a home purchase is um debt to income ratio they're convinced that they that they wouldn't qualify based on debt to income ratio um and you know that's the kind of a whole nother conversation. It, it goes a couple different ways. If you're self-employed or you're a wage earner, um, but debt to income ratio. You know, looking at your gross income if you're a wage earner, it's kind of closer to your net if you're self-employed, which is a little bit of a bummer in that regard. But um, the debt to income ratios are. You read these things like if you go like today's consumer starts on the internet. A lot of the times they show up in my office going, okay, well, I read, and you go, okay, well, most of the time, sadly, the things you're reading on the internet are written by people that don't do this for a living, so they're very, um, you know, unexperienced with what this topic is, or the information's outdated, right, coming from something from 2005. Like, you're still seeing, like, don't let your broker talk you into a negatively amortizing loan. That's old. That stuff's not useful to you. Um, the other thing that I see happen is that the experts will write stories based on what some of the federal standards are. Well, the federal housing ratio says that you can have a front-end debt-to-income ratio of 27% and a back-end of 31 um, That means take your gross income, you know, divide your house payment by your gross income, and that number should be somewhere around 30%. I was curious if we could dig out of um, our software one day what the average debt to income ratio is for a purchase transaction. I'm going to suggest it's north of forty percent. I think I, I want to say I did that once. Did you? Yeah, I'm trying to. It. Yeah, I, I would say that forty percent feels pretty common to me. Yeah, there's some. You know, there's there's definitely some folks where they have lots of equity in a property. They're um, older and and they have lower debt to income. Sure. but yeah, I think I I see mid to high thirties and into the low forties quite a bit when I'm looking at files. Yeah, so if you if you read one of those articles and you thought that thirty percent was sort of the what the federal standards are, where you're you sort of like at the healthy balance of your house payment to your you know to your income. 30%, that's pretty ideal. Uh, the, the reality is that working America is above 30%. Um, the people that we see, like you said, 40 is not uncommon. I'm going to suggest that 40 is the norm. Um, and 
And that makes a big difference, by the way, in terms if you're qualifying yourself, say, well, I make 3000 bucks a month, and so, you know, 30% versus... And so you rule yourself out, whereas it might you might be able to qualify at 40 or, in some cases, even 50%. Um, sometimes debt-to-income ratios will even go higher than that. So the reality is that once you stop couch qualifying and you come on into the office, what you find out is some of these programs will allow you to have a debt-to-income ratio of 50 or 55%. Translation, you actually qualify for more than you feel comfortable borrowing. Most people get pre-qualified and then they start backing into a number. Well, you know what? Thank you for that. That's nuts. I'm not going to buy a $700,000 house. I'm not even interested in that. I'm thinking, get me, what would I be at with a payment of $3,200 a month? Okay, $3,200 a month. Oh, that's a $610,000 house or you know whatever the number is. And then that's where we send them out into the market. So most people are self-governing. Um, relying more on their own comfort and lifestyle savings goals and things like that than just simply going to the maximum that the debt to income ratio thresholds allow. Um, so that's that's a those are great things and that's a message I always want to get out. And I know that a lot of the listenership to KVEC, um, a lot of our listenership. What's our main demographic? Oh gosh, that's a tough one. No, it's not. Um, I would say it's it's probably in their 40s, 50s. I was going to say 35 plus. I think this yeah. station's pretty strong. Yeah, yeah 35 really plus. Strong, and, I, and, you know, I think a lot of the demographic here at KVC are um, working or retired and yeah. homeowners. I yeah. mean, it's a, it's we're getting a different crowd than you're getting on, like, you know, I know New Rock's gone, mm-hmm. but that's the one I like to pick on. That's, you know, what every 17-year-old kid's got cranked up in his truck. Um, it's a different demographic. So over but, here, um, like I said, I like to get this message out. These are the people that are in that right. kind of primeville. And even if you're at the top end of it, if you're part of the retired community that listens to KVEC, you've got kids or grandkids that you can share this information to. Um, and one of the things I know from most of the, uh, you know, the, the retiree age uh, people is that they all recognize the significance of having invested in real estate years ago. That fact that you can get, you know, and I, this is a, we're about to take a commercial break and I'll finish up here on just saying, this is my, this is my sales pitch to all of you guys is that. If you come in today and you buy a home, the first few years are hard. They are because your mortgage is more than your rent. It might be close, but it's more than your rent. You feel stretched a little thin and it's stressful, but your house payment is relatively fixed. You get a 30-year fix. I say relatively. A couple things are going to go on. You got to maintain it. And your taxes and your insurance are going to go up gradually every year. That's almost a given. But... 20, let's go 25 years from now, um, there's Dan the renter and Dan the homeowner. What is your rent going to be 25 years from today, Dan? It's going up. It's going up. Double. Right. Triple, quadruple. Triple, yeah. I don't 25 know. Years, it's a long What's time. your mortgage payment going to be in 25 years? Well, with a 30-year fixed, that part's going to definitely be fixed. The and, same, uh, Only the taxes will have increased slightly. So, yeah, you're going to experience rating. a little bit more expense there. All the while, your rent, I mean, I love saying this, what's the interest rate today for a 30-year fix? Let's call it 4%. That's ridiculously high than what it really is. Um, what's the interest rate on rent? 
It's, it's 100%. <laughs> you're, Rick, not, you're not building equity with Rick rent. is 100% interest. This is money down yeah. a hole that you never get back. Somebody thanks you. They're living off of you. Um, they're enjoying you. Their kids and heirs to their estate are enjoying you paying their rent. Uh, it's a fantastic thing. And obviously, there's different seasons in life. We all rent it at some point. Um, but so going back to the point, um, it, it's a good thing to plan for tomorrow is to get yourself into a home. The first few years are tough. It's expensive. There's some sacrifices to make. You got to maybe you're not going to be able to go to Starbucks twice a day every day anymore as you're going to have to start brewing your coffee at home, maybe even going without. But it's it's part of that big financial picture of how to have some control and some um, some security in your future that in my opinion, you know, I guess this is debatable. So, well, Starbucks does have that bag coffee you can take home and they probably have a machine that you can buy. Right. They so, do. It'd be kind of like that, but just yeah. doing it at home. Yeah. There it is. All right. Um, oh, Trey's in a Spanish class right now. He's in high school taking Spanish 1A. So I'm trying to brush back up on all my old <laughs> Spanish. It's Saturday, right? Yeah. yeah. But I, what I'm, I'm saying, like, now, like oh, this semester. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. So okay, I was not like right. I this looked moment. at the clock and I was inclined to say it's like uh, yeah. Nueve y Media. <laughs> it's nine thirty right now. Yeah. See. So it's time for a commercial break. Um, when we get back, we'll uh, we'll talk more. We got more things to cover. I actually wanted to talk a little bit about reverse mortgages at some point today too. So there's some house stuff, some economic data, things to chew on. So stick around after this short break for more mortgage matters. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending, Central Coast Lending. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is locally owned and operated with locations in Paso Robles, Morro Bay, Atascadero, San Luis Obispo, and Arroyo Grande. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show.
All right, everybody, welcome back. It's pretty high energy right there. Well, it's a high energy, high energy show. <laughs> yes, it is. Have you seen this show that he's doing with his son Jack? World Detour on History. No, it's actually really good. Ozzy's like this big history buff. That doesn't they go surprise to different me. Places that he uh, didn't get a chance he's to travel really so much. Yeah, they were in China last week on Sunday, and this is pretty cool. Actually, show you wouldn't never have thought. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah. I thought it was fascinating. I watched a little bit of that show on probably a decade ago on MTV where it was like... Oh, about his family? Yeah, the, yeah, Osborns. the Osborns. That was funny. Yeah, yeah was in funny. fact, it sort, of, <laughs> it sort of springboarded his wife. Like, isn't she on The View now or something? Yeah. yeah. Sharon. Sort of springboarded her. Yeah, Sharon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She was actually kind of the highlight Sharon! of that show. Oh, and the Aussie was like, he'd <laughs> yeah. come down into the kitchen yeah, yeah, like yeah. in a bathrobe with a... <laughs> you know, like he's just... Always seem like he just woke up and just. I'm always. uh, They need to put subtitles on for him because you can never Uh, understand a word out of his mouth. I know. You can understand him when he's singing. And then he sings and it's clear. It's clear. It's a fascinating thing to me. I don't know. It's like. I don't know. I don't get it either. But yeah. Made me think it's like all part of an act or something. Yeah. It possibly is. He's not stupid. That's for sure. (laughs) Interesting. All right, well, get back to my notes over here. You were talking a little bit last, before the break, about people disqualifying themselves for debt-to-income ratio. Just wanted to talk, I guess, anecdotally about that. I hear a lot of people, they say, "Uh, you know, I don't show a lot on paper. Don't show a lot of my taxes. I probably, you know, it's probably not even worth, worth my time or your time to come in. Then you start talking about it. Well, so, okay, you're, are you self, you're self-employed. You're not showing a lot on paper. You know, yeah. f- there are things that we add back. There are, there are a lot of things that are, we call them paper losses. Whenever somebody starts going down that road, I like to ask them pretty quick, too. Oh, on your Schedule C, do you have any um, depletion or depreciation? And they look at me and go, I don't know. Right. Well, that's what I want to see. That's because, something we add back. Yeah, sometimes even car... And like the car truck expense, that yeah. mileage deduction. Um, when you expense a, the auto miles, it's it's expensed at like 56.5 cents per mile. Well, 23 cents per mile of that is depreciation. Yep. So you can add that portion back into your income as well. And people who drive a lot, that can be a substantial amount of money. Yeah, well, and in terms of like the depreciation thing too, um, like for example, I did a loan a few years ago for a guy that owned a photography company. And he had a lot of money into photography stuff. And, of course, it was depreciating. So um, another one was a guy that um, owned a plumbing business. So he had a lot, a lot of, of equipment. Yeah, a lot of equipment, a lot of inventory, too, that was under the depletion and depreciation category. Those things get added right back into your income. Yeah. Um, and so, by the way, kind of tax tip here. <laughs> as you go sit down with your accountant, because aren't we drawing near to the end of another year? I mean, we're yeah. we're getting close. If you're doing big tax planning, the fall here is like where you want to get good at it. Hey, hey. Sorry about that. I was talking. You're doing something up there. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. That's it's so off. distracting. It's, it's so now. rude, Jim. It's, it's off. It's off. Um, so, yeah, but... Because those are things that you're um, can be added back into your loan, 
I like to tell my people like, hey, when you go sit down with the accountant, uh, because we're kind of trying to pre-qualify you here um, and or not, like, don't you just mention to your accountant that, hey, things that go under depreciation and depletion for my business are they sort of lessen my tax liability at the same time they don't negatively impact my my qualification for things I want to borrow. So can't is is there an opportunity? Are you missing an opportunity? Do they go in other sections and it's possible to put some of those, you know, I'm not suggesting that you're doing something that's, you know, illegal or unethical or untrue. What I'm asking is can that be considered a, a depreciation item? Are you skipping those? Are you missing that? Are you putting it into another category? At least just have a conversation about it. Um, sometimes it makes a big deal. I was looking at some tax returns for uh, a gentleman recently. He's self-employed. It's computer, computer repair and software maintenance type stuff. And with lots of parts, lots of equipment, um, he had over $50,000 annually in depreciation. That's $4,000 a month of qualifiable income added back to his his income. So I tell you something else about <laughs> this. Um, so many of the loans that I, I mean, I've made so many good loans to people that have been turned down elsewhere because oftentimes loan officers don't even know how to look at these taxes. Yeah. You know, you go talk to a loan officer that has a reasonable amount of experience. If they're being honest, they know how to calculate out somebody that's on a salary, you know, or they know how to deal with somebody that's got um, something that appears pretty straightforward. You start getting into the weeds of multiple streams of income, you know, those kind of things where you've got passive income, royalty income, um, that self-employed income with, with those depreciation type of items. They'll either like start turning people away or get really unconfident really quick. Um, this is one of the things where having come from the underwriter world, and I always laugh now too because when I was underwriting, back when I that was my job, I had these loan officers that said, I used to underwrite and I never would have done that or I would have done this. And I always thought, man, that's why you're not an underwriter. You know, just laugh like you're you're the guy from yesteryear trying to tell me the guy that has the real job today. Um, but some of the experience I gleaned from that and some really valuable experiences, you got to get good at underwriting tax returns. You got to know how to do that. You got to know how to look at the different streams and what kind of histories you need and likelihood of continuance for the different types of income. I am at peace with this. You bring me your corporate tax returns for your nine corporations that are all funneling into, you know, and you got an S corp here and a C corp here and an LLC here and a partnership here. You bring me all of those funneling all down into your personal 1040. I know how to make a deal out of that. At least figure out what it is. I'm perfectly comfortable in that. Um, and so consequently, a lot of our staff has gotten pretty good at it. And if not, they all know to bring them to me if they're in a, in a spot where they're just wanting that second set of eyes to be sure. And I bring this up because if you went like, I want to go back to like that plumber guy you're talking about, <clears throat> the plumber walks into, you know, some, some bank we like, I like to pick on Wells Fargo. So he goes into Wells Fargo and he goes, I'd like to get a loan. You know, I should buy a house. My accountant says I should buy a house. And then the kid looks at the tax returns and goes, dude, you made 17 grand last year. First page, 
first page. You made seventeen grand. Come on, Joe the plumber, get out of here. You know, I, I got a, I got a big wig behind you that's really going to be able to borrow some jumbo money. And then the plumber guy listens to our show. He shows up and brings his tax returns to us. We dig out the four grand of appreci- of depreciation that can be added back. Now with the seventeen grand that the dude makes, he's making fifty five hundred bucks a month, and we've got him pre qualified to buy a house. It's so easy for people that don't know how to look under the hood or you know kind of read past the front page if they don't know what's going on, either because they they're not confident. Um, they're on a salary. That's the other thing. <laughs> when you're on a salary, like a loan officer on a salary at a bank, you're not scrapping the way we're scrapping. I want to. I mean, I. This is a this is a great thing. I always like to tell people too, especially when they get frustrated in the loan transaction. Hey, remember, I get paid only when I'm a hundred percent successful for you. That's it. I don't have a pension. Nobody's paying my health care. Nothing about this is like easy for me. I live and die by my ability to win for you. So don't get mad at me. Keep fulfilling the the requests i have for you and we're going to walk this thing out together um i think some other organizations where you got somebody that's like on a lofty salary working towards like a you know a a vested pension and some sweet benefits i don't do you really have time to get into page three of the tax returns and want to fight with this guy about you know what kind of plumbing things we can add back maybe not you know i just logic would tell me maybe not Um, And I don't know. I was never a loan officer at a big bank, so maybe they are all great. But uh, we get a lot of business from people that have been turned down somewhere else. Oh, it turns out they won't do a debt-to-income ratio past 41%. Perfect. You know, push hard. There's three copies. We have a deal for you over here. Um, It's it's just one of those things where, you know, that that experience, that ability to do that, it's valuable. Sometimes it's um, people who aren't self-employed that are disqualifying themselves too. I've, you know, folks that are on fixed income, oftentimes their income is such that their um, their social security that they receive it's untaxed. It shows up on their tax return, but it shows up in the untaxable field and not the taxable. So when you have income like that, you, we're in mortgage qualification, we're qualifying people on gross income, assuming they're having some taxes taken out. So when we run into someone who's got income where it's not being taxed at all, we actually go the other way. We, we gross it up 125%. We use 125% of the untaxed income figure. Actually, as you started mentioning that little little part of my heart just warmed up right there thinking about one of my favorite transactions that I've ever done. There's a few. Um, in fact, that would probably be a cool segment on the show to talk about the fun ones. There's been a few that um, have really had an impact on me personally, one of which was actually a deal um, for a couple. Um, one of the guys, he's he's in a wheelchair, and he's, he's, not, he's not old. He's disabled, and um, he just couldn't get a loan. And uh, we were able to get him a loan. One of the things he got turned away from one of the big banks in town uh, because he didn't even file tax returns. He had, because his disability was untaxable, he didn't make over the threshold to even be able to file. And so he didn't. And so that wasn't a that wasn't an issue for us. We were able to not only count that income, but get him qualified to be able to buy a house. Um, and 
Yeah. Anyway, there's another success of a similar one like that with some Social Security income. We were able to gross up and qualify. This guy got turned down for a few loans in a row trying to buy, um, was trying to get a van that had like a handicapped um, ramp that came out. So then you would, you know, position the wheelchair on the ramp that would then draw it up inside the car. And then you could go to the wheel basically so that you could drive yourself without having to transfer from a wheelchair to a to a driving seat. I mean, that's what this thing was. And so anyways, he had been turned down several times to be able to get a loan. People didn't want a loan to him. And we were actually able to do, because he owned a home, we were able to do a refinance to be able to get him qualified to do um, a $50,000 cash-out refi to to make that purchase. I mean, it proved to be an expensive vehicle, but um, and a game-changer for him, by the way, for family and life. Um, so yeah, another, those things, that's, those are great reasons why, um, you know, for somebody like us, like a company like ours, we know what we're doing and we have so many investors that we work with. Some of them, as you could imagine, don't want anything to do with that. Nah, you got to file tax returns. Well, it's not required by Fannie Mae. It is at our company. Yeah. And then other companies go, no, 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 no. If Fannie Mae doesn't require it, we can walk that out. And so, you know, that's the thing where I say, if you're just going to walk into a bank off the street, which one did you walk into? And how do you know? Because they don't ever tell you, because this is bad business. Well, real sorry, Dan, your application's been denied. And then what, I lean in close and I go, but it's not you, it's me. <laughs> right. My company won't do this, but everybody else will. So... Keep your chin up, go two doors up into the next bank, and you're going to get this done. They don't do that. They tell you, Dan, we're real sorry your application's been denied for these reasons. Correct your problem and come on back when you're ready. I wish that there was some law that when a company denied your loan that they had to tell you it was due to a, a conservative overlay. It was a decision on their company's behalf because so many times people get shopped down at a bank that has some conservative overlay to a product or program that others do not. And and this is why I'm an, I'm a known exaggerator. You know that. I admit to that. I always say, we work with 50 different banks. How many banks do we have? You're the dude that keeps the bank approval. I mean, it's like 40 so or so banks, yeah. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to still go with 50. <laughs> okay. But this is why, right? I mean, yeah, the, I know Different this, niches like, with different banks. This is one of the... I don't want to say primary things because you do so many primary things for our company, but this is one of the big things that you do, though, is keep us with approvals and acquiring new ones for a new product or program or leniency or something with somebody else to basically just keep a menu of banks available to us, the sales staff, where I always say, if you're lendable, we can do it. If it has to do with a residence and you're lendable, we can do it. And and I really I pride myself in the fact that our company can do things that other companies deny. Truly. Whether it like earlier in the show when we were talking about debt to income, some of these companies cap a debt to income ratio or they'll set a minimum credit score. That's that's just their preference. It's or their, we don't allow gift funds when it's a high loan amount or you yeah. know, there's all kinds of different overlays you'll see. Yeah. And I, or, I agree. With here's, all another, the here's another one. I'm, disclose that. This is a real <laughs> transaction for me this week. Um, I'm doing a loan for a real estate agent in town who... 
I suspect she had something to do with the purchase back when, but mom doesn't live here and bought a condo in San Luis 10 years ago. And now mom basically just wants the daughter, the real estate agent, to just refinance it into her name. So they came to me and said, all right, I got to buy this house from my mom. So I said, well, you can do that. It's it's an investment property. You can do that. If you go that way, you're going to have to make a down payment because you can't do gift funds on an investment property. That's not allowed. Um, so you'd have to make a down payment and all this, that, and the other. But it's a difficult, that's kind of a, a challenging little transaction. Now you got a bunch of sales fees and these different things as you're buying something from your mom. How about this? How about you get added to title and we do a refinance? Well, even last year, that wasn't permissible because of a continuity of obligation. Basically, because she wasn't already obligated to that note, she can't just refinance it herself. Well, Fannie Mae lifted that guideline. Do you remember when it was? Close to six months ago, eight months ago, something like that. They lifted that guy. There's no longer a continuity of obligation thing. And so what this means is I literally like, you know, you could add me to your title tomorrow and then I could refinance your house on Monday and and get the loan in my name. That um, sound a little crazy? I feel like it sounds a little crazy. Would you, I mean... Well, it's trying to prevent like foreclosure bailout type of situations. And, and, but this is a situation where that's obviously not the case. And right. This is something that's beneficial so, to the family. Start on down the list. Go to my first five banks. Hey, I got daughter going to be, because we, we want to get our ducks in a row before we start monkeying around with title. Daughter's going to be quick claimed this property from mom. So it's going to be in her name. The loan is currently in mom's name, and that's the loan I'm going to refi. I'm going to do it as a rate and term refi, and and daughter's simply going to get a new loan to cover the payoff of mom's loan and the fees. That's the agreement. I got shot down six times in a row. Nope. Needs to be on title six months before she can do that. said, no, that's the continuity of obligation guideline that just got removed. Here it is. Fannie Mae got rid of that. The first five banks said... Yeah, I know they did. We don't do that. Ah, so frustrating. So I go to the sixth bank. Tell them the story again. Mom's going to be giving the title to daughter. Daughter's then going to refinance mom's loan. Rate and term refinance. No, we can't do that. Yes, we can. Fannie Mae got rid of that rule. Here's the rule. Let me talk to my manager. This thing goes all the way up to the top of the bank. Bank comes back and says, yep, you can do that. Send in your application. So that's, I mean, that's why that's, that's a great example of why we purposefully structure ourselves in a way that we have opportunity to, to get to different lenders that have different standards, different things they're willing to do, um, and an ability to do these transactions in ways that are not only just getting it done, but also a cost effective way. Where any one of us could have done that as a purchase is much more expensive that way. My borrower would have had to put 20% down. Even if the mom sold her the condo for $240,000, which is well below market and slow, she still would have had to put 20% down because it's an investment property. She would have had to cough up, you know, 50000 bucks yeah. to go, you know, it just, there's better ways to do these things. 
um, if it's more affordable or just going from one company to the next. This is this is one of the big, most powerful components to our business. And and I've given you guys a few examples of things that we could do that that may sound risky or weird. And so I could I can kind of feel you rolling your eyes, some of you, because I kind of am too. But let me tell you, let me let me take it one step farther. Some banks are so conservative that they only want people with 760 plus credit scores, 80% or less loan to value, X amount of dollars in the bank. They're super conservative and very, very picky about what they want. And in trade, they're going to give you the best interest rates, the lowest closing costs, amazing deals. This, I mean, when you hear us in here talking about how we beat Quicken and we beat Cash Call and we beat any of these other lenders that you're talking about or going to, this is how we're doing it. We're doing it with companies that are paying a premium for quality borrowers. So this is yet another example of just having those additional investors on the roster is what translates into you. So. You know, of all of the other ways, when you come in and we get you qualified and we figure out based on your credit and down payment and reserves and all these things where you can go, what program you can get, we're also sort of, you know, looking at this matrix of lenders about where also you can get the best deal. Not only be successful in getting a loan approval and getting a loan funded, but where can we get you the best deal? Where's the the service? What's the company that um, you are what they're after? You know, that that you're the borrower that fits them. You're not going to be going and try to be the round peg in a square hole, you know. Um, mobile home financing is another one of those things. So many banks just said, nah, we don't do that at all. If it's a manufactured home of any kind, it's a no. And then we have banks that um, will do it. So they're on the list too. Construction loans, same thing. Land loans, same thing. There's all these different banks out there that they're they're comfortable with something that another bank considers that a risky piece of business and they don't want to do it about 10 minutes ago this comment felt a little more relevant but you were on a roll <laughs> so I was letting you go. <laughs> it wasn't 10 minutes so w- one other thing related to people disqualifying themselves for debt to income <laughs> purposes it was 10 minutes ago. <laughs> I, I hear uh, this is a comment that actually happens quite often. We'll get elderly people who come in, they're interested, or they'll call in and they're interested in refinancing. But the question is, you know, I'm 70. Can I, qual- can I get a 30-year loan? I'm 80. I'm 80. I can gave I, a, the bank's not going to give me a 30-year loan. My career record <clears throat> as stands today, no one's beat it yet in the company that I'm aware of. Keep an eye out because I know you see everybody's closed <laughs> business. I gave a 30-year fix to a guy that was 91. <laughs> Boom. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, and you know what? You want to know why I'm proud of it? Not that I saddled this guy with a debt that's going to outlive him. Yeah. He needed to get this loan. It was a fixed rate, 30-year fixed loan, and and he needed it. it you changed. gave him a loan he could afford is yeah. what you did. It was affordable. It was fixed, and he was never going to have to worry about it again. And yeah. we're all pretty sure that this loan... He's not going to make it to 120. Yeah, 120. No, I mean, the, the, the actuaries are just against you at that point. But... It, and people go, that's crazy. Um, it's actually not. It means that we don't discriminate uh, against 
based on based age. on age. Yeah. So that's a that's a real thing but too. But people so will, will come in, they'll disqualify themselves, thinking at best I'll get a ten year loan, yeah. and, and I'm smart enough. You know, I've experienced enough in in lending to know that a ten year payment. On is the same, too much. Is, is more expensive than a 30-year payment on the same loan amount. So they'll disqualify themselves that way, but that's not the case. It's illegal anyone, to discriminate based on age. Yeah, anyone can qualify for a 30-year fixed amortized loan, and that can make the difference in their ability to qualify or not, especially when you're on fixed income. Yeah. So Yeah, there's only a couple of instances where age plays a factor, and, and it's okay to play a factor. One is... At least in California, it's got to be the case probably nationally, right? That you got to be 18 to enter a legally binding contract. Right. So there's some exceptions. But if yeah, you're for 17 the most part. because you're, a, I don't know, your childhood soap star, whatever, however you found your riches, um, you're 17, you're buying a house and there's no guardian or whatever around to, to be that person. We can't do that for you um, because you're, you, you can't legally enter into the contract. So that's, that's, and that's okay. That's part of one of the reasons why. The other one is um, 62. It's the magic cutoff for being able to get a reverse mortgage. you got to be 62 to get one. That's the rule. It's a federal program. So if you're 61, you do not get to get or apply for that loan until you're 62. Um, otherwise... All bets are off concerning age. It doesn't matter, um, you know, if you're 18 by a day, you're going to have some credit issues because you're not old enough to have good credit, but you're not you're not excluded. Or if you're 90 and need a 30 year fixed. So, hey, we got another hour to go. So just a quick five minute break, and we'll be back with a whole another hour of Mortgage Matters. We hope you guys stick around. You're listening to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. If you missed any part of the show, log on to centralcoastlending.com for archived shows and more. Now, back to your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. I know you wanted to spend some time this hour talking reverse mortgages. Two topics. I mean, great segues of the first hour. I got two topics here that we've that would just sort of um, just touch right, just get right there. Um, yeah, I want to talk about reverse mortgages. I don't want to run out of show before I bring you guys up to date. Also on Wells Fargo. Yeah, there, I was going to say bit, there's some newsy things that we got to cover. A little bit real of hot quick. water they got yeah. into. Uh, but yeah, let's talk reverse mortgages for a minute. No, let's do some news. You want to go news? <laughs> yeah. All right. Is there, any sound, is there any sound bites I need to bring up here? <laughs> no, no. no. Okay. All right. Well, save me some time, though. 
Okay. I want to talk about reverse mortgages, and I think I want to talk about reverse mortgages for about a half an hour. Okay. That's what I got penciled in over here. There was some some big activity the last couple of days in the markets that I thought was important to share. Mm-hmm. Things that affect interest rates and whatnot. Okay. That's important stuff, given yeah. that we're a, mor- a show related to mortgage and real estate. Um, so, on Thursday and Friday, in particular on Friday, big market movement. We saw stocks decline. The Dow declined nearly 400 points on Friday alone. And from Wednesday to close on Friday, we saw the bond market make a pretty big move. Mm-hmm. which negatively impacted interest rates, meaning interest rates rose, I'd say, about an eighth to a quarter of a point in two days. Um, and, and and basically what it was, what what the belief is, is that there's just general market jitters over the this upcoming September FOMC meeting. And it what was really interesting about this move in the in in particular the ten year treasury, which went from about one point five three close on Wednesday to one point six seven percent was the the close on Friday. It actually touched into one six eight even higher um, on I'm sorry on Friday was the close. So it moved up about fifteen basis points, fourteen fifteen basis points in in the two day period. Um, but it wasn't just here. It wasn't just the U.S. 10-year Treasury note. We also saw treasuries worldwide make a similar move. The German Bund uh, made a similar move. And so what we saw worldwide was this, the traders starting to believe that we might, this might truly be the beginning of increasing rates worldwide, that we might be done with this, this cycle of easing and, um, you know, accommodation for the recovering economies around the world that we might be entering this period of time where we're going to start to see rates go up worldwide. As that student that like missed class and now has to force you to repeat yourself. Did you talk last week about the jobs report? We did. And that it wasn't great. But there was also a lot of talk this week that it's not necessarily that all these economies have fully recovered and that rates, you know, are going to go up because of that. There was also talk that just some of these other countries, which happen to be big buyers of our bonds and of bonds worldwide, that they're kind of running out of of resources, running out of money to be able to buy more bonds. And that in order to use what little resources they have to buy those types of instruments, that they have to be a little more attractive than where they sit today. And so because of that, because of, you know, there is a quarter of a point make that more attractive. Um, it starts to. Ah, a quarter? It starts to. Are you kidding but me? that's but that's the the thing is that it's not just a quarter of a point. It's the belief that we're on and that sure. we're approaching this time where we're sure. going to be on an upward trajectory. Yeah, not yeah. just a one time. Well, increase. this is this is what we saw a year ago in December when the Fed's raised rates. That that time they did. Remember that that time they did all that time <laughs> yeah, ago. Yeah, way back in December. Um, that the difference was it wasn't a substantial move, but it marks the the changing of basically the sentiment that you're you're now entering into a period of um, increasing interest rates. That the economy's there; it's at that point we're ready for it. This is what it's going to be like. Here we go. I'm having trouble believing that the feds are truly going to raise interest rates at the September meeting. I don't believe they are either. 
But we know how these markets move. They they are forward looking. They they look out as you know. Oftentimes, the belief is that it's about six months. It's looking six months into the future. So why the why the Dow sell off? I mean, because because look, it was only a short couple weeks ago where you said. Um, Good news is bad news, and bad news is good news again. And I'm having trouble keeping up with this right now. Is the good news bad news, or is the bad news good news? <laughs> I didn't just say the same thing. It's a fickle market. When you get a headline that means that, hey, the economy is not on as firm a ground as we thought. Stock market go, up. Oh, because we're going to have that stimulus, the Fed, they're going to keep the rates low, which keeps this positive environment. Okay, great. That's now you made bad news, good news. And then to the flip side, this economy has been generally saying, well, hey, good news is good news. We've all been waiting for this economy to be definitely on firm ground. So that's a fantastic jobs report. Thank you for that. Good news is good news. The stock market goes up. So why is the stock market going down? That's the question, right? Yeah, because it's the, one of these things. Yeah, it is the question. And what I'm going to say is I think it's probably another 24 hours in the market. They'll forgot about it. It'll all be back. I, I'm not sure about the 24-hour thing, but I think that there's a strong belief that part of this rally that we've seen in stocks isn't necessarily because there's all this great innovation with companies or that kind of thing, that it's really somewhat artificial because money is so cheap right now. These low interest rates are what's fueling stock prices, you know, going up above 18, the Dow going above 18,000 and all these record highs in that. And with the the idea, the notion that rates are going to start to go higher, that there's belief that there's going to be pullback in prices. So the folks that can make moves now are starting to think, well, I'm going to get ahead of this. I'm going to pull money out of these stocks before there's the bigger sell off later when the rates are actually going up. Okay. So that's why we're... just and, and there was, here, you know, yeah, it's all no, speculation. I get it, but at the same time, um, raise your hand if you have currently borrowed money to invest in the stock market. I mean, not in this room, Who does obviously. That? People do. I know they do, but that's not <laughs> smart. Like buying stock on margin and things. Anyway, point being, it, it used to be, okay, that if rates were low... It was an environment for your business to have a lower overhead, basically, right? Make your investments. Yep. If you're doing payroll on line of credit, do all your thing. It made it to where you were at a at an advantage in a lower rate environment. So you could get into the growth cycle. That would potentially drive your stock value up. It's a a little bit of a delicate balance here because then once the economy starts going when these rates start to come along with it rates going to go up a little bit here and there well they're going up you're doing better because the economy is better so whatever good or or service that your company sold that was dependent on its stock value really you're having greater profits now because the increase in business which is really a result of the general economy improving 
Today, what we have is if those were the the kind of the sentiment or rules of engagement that like sort of broad view of the bigger investment market as related to to the interest rates. Um, so now what? You're in business, and there's this idea that economically your business is like not necessarily on firm footing, but these rates are going to go up anyway, so it undermines your stock value. People start selling off. Go, oh, man, the tough times are coming because these rates are going up. It's almost like you're pulling one lever without agreeing that the other one's in a good spot. You, you, we don't all have this benefit of growing business that are doing better and that we could all withstand a very subtle rate hike um, in the September meeting or the December meeting. If you got to lose 3% in a day's trading because the sentiment is moving towards um, this is what makes me think that it's a volatile knee-jerk reaction where what you said is accurate. Maybe you're trying to get ahead of the curve or whatever. A couple key players in the market move. That was that idiot, that Kramer guy with the baby crying button thing that's all totally sensationalizing these things. It's enough of that kind of thing where you go, oh, well, I'm not going to get stuck there. And and then you see the Dow drop 100 points and a couple of other programs or traders or whoever start to sell too. And so you see the Dow drop 200 points, which then triggers a few more. Now the, draw, the Dow drops 400 points. And then on Monday, people go, you know what? It's Monday. We got another work week ahead of us. We got this work to do. Um, it's not that – it's not the end of the world – um, and maybe 330 of those points come back. Yeah, but what's different is that this wasn't just a U.S. market phenomenon. This was a worldwide thing, and that's what's kind of interesting and different about this. Um, you know, there's, well, and then there's still only a quarter per, of traders, 25% or so of traders that believe that we're going to see a September rate hike. So it's not that everyone's believing that it's all of a sudden going to happen this month. But there's a strong belief that it's going to happen by December. There's going to be a rate hike. Is this the rest year. of the world a little bit freaked out that we've got a runoff between Hillary and Trump right now? There's, I, I think, uncertainty certainly has it has to do with all this, and that's why you're seeing a pullback in stocks as well as bonds. You're seeing money just come out, and and that has a lot to do with uncertainty, in my opinion. You know, you don't. A lot of times in uncertainty, you you go to the safety of the bond Air market. On the side. But when bond market prices are at peak, high, you know, rates rates are low, which means prices are high. Is that really where you want to be when it's you maybe know not you're going to be haven. in a in a in a rising rate environment? I would say no. Not really a safe haven. We have a caller waiting on the line. We've got Matt calling from San Luis Obispo. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for calling. Well, well you bet. You bet. I appreciate your uh, show. Uh, of course, uh, uncertainty around the world uh, keeps people still moving money into the United States because we still believe that, a lot of people still believe that we are the most stable uh, country politically and, and financially, and that's why people still bring money in here. Uh, but if I may uh, make a comment about uh, real estate and what's happening in another part of the world. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I was born in Finland, came from there. But the country right next to us uh, on the west side is Sweden. Well, all of the countries around the world, including Sweden, have a problem with the refugees. 
Um, Sweden has a population of a little over about 8 million people. They've taken in 60,000 refugees at this point. And uh, now the problem is where do they house them? So their system permitted the government to basically take over the um, second homes, and uh, they, they went to the people who owned second homes and uh, said, okay, we are using your, your facilities now to house the refugees. There's no compensation, there's, there's nothing, and uh, that's what they did. Uh, our system, fortunately, doesn't, uh, doesn't permit that because uh, our Declaration of Independence and Constitution give, uh, give us certain rights. And uh, as our, our declaration says, uh, uh, we have been granted by uh, by our God with certain unalienable rights among them being life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. They they argued our founding fathers argued for a long time whether that uh, pursuit of happiness should be should be property rights, but they used uh, a broader term, the pursuit of happiness. Well, we can't. In our system we have uh, our system doesn't permit the government at this point yet to take over private property the way they're doing in Sweden right now. How would you like to be a landlord and the government comes to you and says, well, we've got millions of these refugees coming in here now, so you, you have to house them and, uh, because you're, you're, you're so well-to-do that you actually own a rental home or a, or a cottage someplace, so we'll just take it over and, and uh, you keep the refugees. So uh, I'm very thankful to live in the United States because we have these uh, the guarantees that we have that uh, it can't happen here, but we've got to make sure that we put in office those people who do not believe in the massive governmental power and the administrative uh, administrative law type of a system that that in, uh, that the Democrats are trying to put in here. So uh, that's what, what I wanted to talk about and make me make my comment. I appreciate you so very much. Thank you. Thanks, right. Matt. Thanks, Matt. We appreciate the call. I, I, this was an interesting thing happened um, between the U.S. and Mexico recently where you couldn't own land. Um, and, and that was kind of one of the things that kept the value of land down there less. I think as, even, you had to be a citizen or something like this, right? Well, in the United States, that is one of the best benefits that we have. There's a lot of great benefits. One of the best ones is the understanding of your free property. That was loud. Yeah, and I don't know why either. <laughs> Sounded like an update. You got an update. Something. Yeah. But we understand our property rights in the United States very well. And, um, yeah, that it it's an interesting thing to point out what's going on in Sweden. And, and perhaps that uh, we probably don't recognize to what extent those, uh, you know, the pressures and um, that are put on right now because of the refugees. I, I've read some things about it. I don't feel educated enough to like say anything, um, you know, going to be intelligible about it. But I've been reading that some countries are starting to to put a cap on it now. They feel like they've taken as much as they can and are looking to other countries there in Europe to try to help with the fair share. It sounds like you know, and maybe that is again, if nothing else. It's part of that uncertainty, you know. It's got to feel pretty chaotic. Imagine if you are in Sweden, and the government says, "Hey, Dan, your the vacation home you got over there at the water, we're taking it from you." You know, it's still yours. We're gonna have some people staying. No money, no nothing. I mean that that's pretty wild. That wouldn't be good. No, of course. I feel like 
Do you still have to pay the taxes on it, even though they've <laughs> taken it and now it's refugees in it? I'm sure, mm-hmm. because now the government has increased expenses, yeah. so that wouldn't be the time they want to let you not have taxes. I mean, who do you think's helping with the the other subsidies that that population of wow. um, immigrants is needing? But I feel like regardless of political affiliation, whether you're a major party supporter or you know third party supporter, I think a lot of people share the idea that we value our personal property rights um, and that there'd be some major uproar if, if that ever were even suggested that, you know, someone could just come in and take someone's personal property and give it to others. I, I, yeah, that... I'd like to That'd think so. I would I'd think like so. to think so. And if, and, you know, if nothing else in this country, um, say what you will about the two-party system, and, and I think we could agree that it's largely a two-party system. Um, that's one of the nice things, though, is that it's sort of the checks and balance. And as the pendulum swings, we're reminded that, you know, each party sort of has some different priorities, and the tug-of-war between the two, I hope, keep us in the middle somewhere, you know? So, but as always, thanks Matt for, for calling in. Thanks for listening. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. Um, back to that broader brushstroke though. It's, it's international. It's a global phenomenon right now that things feel a little bit freaky, don't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, the North Korea, the Iran, um, I don't know. I can't make heads or tails of this stuff. We dropped off a boatload of money or something. Some people say that it was interest. Some people say it wasn't. It was hostage ransom. I, one of those countries had a seismic reading the other day. I think it was North Korea had a seismic reading where they detonated an atomic bomb or something for celebrating something or other. We got these flybys that are happening in the Gulf. We got like all this crazy, like it, it seems freaky to me. We hear these stories now, and then I, did, I had no idea that personal property was being taken away from the Swedes to be used to house um, refugees. I guess it makes sense. But I, there's a lot that feels scary, and to me, I think one of the scariest things is basically right now where, I don't know, it seems like the country's at a coin toss between Hillary and Trump. It's got to be freaking out everybody that's worried about tomorrow, isn't it? I mean, it feels scary to me. And last night, we got to do a commercial break here. I'll tell you what I caused me to close the laptop last night. CDC announced the fourth case of the superbug in the U.S. now. It's like the new antibiotic-proof bug that if, I mean, allow yourself to think about that for one second. A bug that modern medicine cannot stop. That's scary. That's absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. You start think about that, where you're, what the world's priorities would go to if we started having a bug, yeah, that could was perfectly resistant to all known antibiotics and yeah. could sweep through populations of total continents or something. Imagine what kind of isolation. I mean, the priorities of the whole world would change if that really got hold. And mm-hmm. um, God, that that's just terrifying. I, that was the one that caused me to close the computer. I, I've had too much today. Yeah, I'm out there. You know, I like to read these articles and figure out what's going on, where, and this kind of thing. I read that one, and that one like really freaked me out. Yeah, it's pretty scary. 
That was the fourth case in the U.S., by the way. Wonderful. It was somebody that had recently traveled to South America um, and, anyway, ended up with this bug. And um, I was, it's terrifying. So look at all this stuff. Yeah. We got kooks with nukes. We got countries that are in full civil unrest. We've got global economic problems. And we got super bugs. We got super bugs. We got Hillary and Trump <laughs> trying to point out all the bad things about one another. Mm-hmm. I was I want to see I I want to see I want to feel something that just feels a little bit better, more peaceful or something for a little bit here. Yeah. Let's do a commercial break. And guess what's going to happen when we get back from commercial break, Dan? We're going to talk a little bit about reverse mortgages. You got it, buddy. Oh, and we're going to talk about Wells Fargo, too, because um, they made the news this week. And I always like to talk about Wells Fargo in the news. So stick around. We're going to take this uh, probably the final commercial break, because I think we're going to need this next half hour. Okay. So we're going to do a short commercial break, and we'll be back with more Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. As mortgage experts, we can help you refinance your home or investment property. We can lower your rate, shorten your term, or get rid of your mortgage insurance. Don't miss the opportunity to improve your financial situation. Call Central Coast Lending today. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 018-39608. NMLS number 328-358. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people. Agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. Can one guy be? I kissed her and she kissed me. Like the fella once said, Ain't that a kick in, in the, the head? Gotta play some Dean Martin once in a while, man. The room Brilliant. was completely yeah. black. I hugged her and she hugged back. Like the sailor said, Quote, Ain't that a hole in a boat? My head keeps spinning. Yeah. Thanks for the palate cleanser. Well, you know what? These songs are timeless, man. I'm gonna get old. I never get over Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. Oh, 
No. It's great. I mean, you know, Farrell in a few years, maybe nobody will know who he is. Maybe. But Frank and Dean will still be around. Um, all right. Thank you for the palate cleanser. There That's it is. nice. Moving on to some happier stuff. And before we fully jump feet first into the, you know, the full on happy stuff. I want to talk real quick about this settlement. I know some people have probably heard a little bit about this. Wells Fargo found themselves in the headlines yet again this week. Paid a settlement announced on Thursday. Um, what are they doing? Creating fake accounts so that they could get bonuses? When you say it like that, it's <laughs> not what it was. <laughs> when you say it like that, you make, you're painting them in a pretty bad light. Dan, be nice. Yeah, they were working towards bonuses. There was incentives and metrics put in place for these, you know, the creation of new accounts. If you're Wells Fargo, the more accounts that you could get your people to have, you know, they might put their investments with you because they already have their auto loan and their car loan and their credit card and their, you know, what have yous, all of these different types of accounts. Um they ended up um, basically being found guilty of having um, open unneeded ghost accounts. That's what they're being called in ghost is in quotes. Ghost accounts for customers. Opening accounts for customers without their knowledge or approval, including credit cards, without their clients' permissions, forged client signatures on paperwork in order to meet their sales quotas. This is the this is the real deal. They effectively um, have got caught now. Um, it's suggested that Wells Fargo, um, from an internal investigation, so Wells Fargo, f- looking at themselves, discovered that they've opened more than two million deposit and credit card accounts with cust- without customers' authorization. Wow. A staggering sum of accounts that have been opened. Um, there was a result of this was as a result of incentives for sales quotas, employees to open accounts basically at all cost. So, um, making sure now, I have no accounts with Wells Fargo. I just had to think about it real quick because I have in the past. A banking customer, I'm not. I did at one time. Um, I also had a Wells Fargo credit card at one time. I don't today. Um, hearing stories like this, by the way, you guys, regardless of political affiliation and all that that goes along with that, we're tired of hearing about that today. Um, you vote with your dollars about the kind of companies that you support and the business practices uh, when you hear about things like this, from uh, which just strike me as full-on outright egregious, I can't help but want to take this opportunity for me, um, you know, rather than sit during the national anthem, I want to tell people, take your money from these big banks that do these kinds of things and join one of our local banks. Um you know, we've got a bunch of them. But at Central Coast Lending, in fact, we bank with several local banks. We've got money um, with uh, u- the usual suspects. Um, our favorites are 
Heritage Oaks Bank is like, it, that's really the operating account for the company. Um, and it's a great bank. Uh, personal service there. The fees and stuff are minimal. It's not, we're not, there isn't any service that we want that we're missing to be banking there. Um, you do all the online banking is super easy. We do the wire transfers. You do ACH. You can set up your automatic bill pay. They've got people on staff at Heritage and at Founders that will sort of be your liaison. Is it's hard to move banks, right? Because if you're if you hear this story and you're a Wells Fargo customer, you're like, well, I have my checking account and my savings account and my line of credit on my house and my business account and my mortgage and my auto loan and everything. So Wells Fargo. That's why you stay, right? That's why you stay. It's too complicated. And by the way, that they're so happy that it's that complicated for you because otherwise, general consumers would hear stuff like this and run, wouldn't they? Wouldn't Wells Fargo's stock fall in half in a day? And they'd probably end up having to be you know, broken up and gobbled up by other banks in the space because this is disgusting. More than 2 million <clears throat> fraudulent accounts were set up as a result of management's top-down philosophy of incenting people with sales quotas to forge documents setting up fake accounts. So, where where's the rubber meet the road? Uh, L.A. City Attorney Mike Fuhrer filed the lawsuit. The U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, all these guys were involved in this. They got a settlement for $185 billion. Million, sorry. Million. Should have been billion, million. That's by the way, that's less than a buck an account. <laughs> One hundred eighty-five million dollars, two hundred million fraudulent accounts, less than a buck an account. What a fine! The idea today, though, is that um, employees of the bank, as well as customers that were um, negatively impacted by these fraudulent accounts and all this, you know, and some of it was just under the guise of upselling. Come in to pay your mortgage and leave with a line of credit or something, those kind of upselling things. Or come in to pay your mortgage and leave and then find out that the teller created a credit card for you with a, by falsifying your signature. That's the kind of thing that these guys are busted for right now. Um, so anyway, they still face, they paid this penalty which has got to be a drop in the bucket right if i get if i make 200 million or 2 million fraudulent accounts or whatever these outrageous numbers are how much money do i make off of those i have no idea i don't know probably a lot they're going to face lawsuits from customers um potentially going to end up with more hemorrhaging to come over this issue but you know, again, as a rule, I just want to suggest if you're banking there, I want to know why. Call me this week and tell me why. <laughs> um, I love the local businesses. I think it's great to to when you can to use your local businesses and local vendors. These business owners here in town and these banks that have local boards and local owners and. You know, they're parts of the local community. These create the jobs, you guys. This, everything that we drive back to these local banks is a, is a direct investment back in our economy. Um, it's it really, it's something you can do. And, and I don't want to just always be picking on Wells Fargo, but these are the kind of stories we get out of the, 
the big bank things. You hear about this stuff. And you never hear about the community bank fabricating accounts or... Well, then <laughs> people are in things. handcuffs. Right. How come nobody's in handcuffs here? Because Wells Fargo is so big that, I mean, they basically... No one person is responsible for this. They just get fined some nominal amount of money. This is... If you did this... I mean, this is full-blown fraud. And if if the people down at Heritage did this, you would have seen like FBI trucks carting off people in handcuffs because we know who runs these organizations. So anyways, it's as important as your vote, where you spend your dollars, what business you patronize. And I just want to remind all people that using these local companies, we don't see stuff like this happen. Um, it's just kind of crazy. So we'll see how it all shakes out. Certainly won't be the last we've heard of it. Um, and to me, by the way, the $185 million drop in the bucket that they had to pay. That's, I feel like that's a laughable punishment. How come nobody's in their profits? Yeah. It's like this, the rapist swimmer guy that got out of jail in six months. Oh, was it three? My yeah. bad. Three. You, know, you, only, serve, you three. only serve three half of your three term. Months. <laughs> three months. And we see these things so often. I almost didn't even click the headline. I'm scrolling through my news feed. Wells Fargo got fined 185 million bucks. Eh, who cares? It's every other week. It's what they do. Somebody's getting fined. Some regulatory agency's busting somebody for doing something that 50 years ago you would have seen people going to jail over. And today we're like, eh, no biggie. I don't have any fraud credit cards. So vote with your dollars, folks. Use local businesses. 20 minutes, 19 minutes, 19 minutes here. Um, I, It's not enough time. Dang it. What uh, did you have something specific or you could do an overview of the reverse mortgage program? Um, I kind of wanted to to start with a couple of broad brushstrokes and then talk a little bit more about it. And a few things have come to my mind earlier. I told you a story about a loan that I did that um, had a really profound impact on the borrowers and consequently myself. I love helping people buy homes and refinance their homes. And I see them save a couple hundred bucks a month from a refi, right? Or take cash out to send their kid to medical school, something like that. Those kind of those are cool stories. Um, I had a couple a few years ago that came in, um, and this, by the way, I think this is how a lot of reverse mortgages start. And and the point of this conversation, so I'll be quick. The point of this conversation is to suggest that uh, we need to change the way we think about reverse mortgages, and not in the way that you think. Okay. But I want to tell you about this couple that came in to get a reverse mortgage. Husband is 10 years older than wife. He's in his 70s. Wife is in her 60s. Um, This particular gentleman was a lawyer and a hardworking dude, kind of a salt of America dude, a veteran, great guy, came into me, sat me down and said, hey, man to man, I failed. I failed my wife in a big way. And I need some help. So, wow. Um, what happened? I was to pay off this mortgage by the time it was retirement time. That was the goal. And now what I'm afraid of is not only do we not pay it off, 
But given the timing of this last recession, we're not even close. The house debt is a crazy, seemingly insurmountable amount of debt. And when I die, my pension stops with my death. It does not go to my spouse. So super upset, realizing that in his 70s, kind of come into that, you know, getting your affairs in order. Because although it perfectly healthy, this gentleman knew that tomorrow wasn't promised. And so he ended up saying, I, my entire life, my intention was to pay the house off so that my wife didn't have that. Because we always knew she wasn't going to get my pension when I died. So in trade, what we would do is make sure that the house was paid off so that when I died, there's no house payment, but there's no pension. Then she could have the other assets. And you know, she worked. She had a stream of income and things where she could keep the balls in the air. Her income is not sufficient, by the way, to pay the mortgage. It's not enough to pay the mortgage and live. So this is where he comes in feeling like a failure. I'll skip all the, the funny color, color commentary on the whole story. We got them a reverse mortgage. The house payment stopped. He's still alive. They're saving money from the pension um, into like a rainy day fund for her for, you know, tomorrow or whenever need be when he pass away, she'll have money. The other greatest thing is with that weight lifted from their shoulder, um, they've been doing some cool stuff and traveling and enjoying a bit more of life. Actually, even last time I talked to him, I did a little bit of a kitchen remodel. Super cool story. Where this guy was literally, I mean, have you ever had a, a grown man, like, in their retirement years tell you they believe they failed at life? No. So it's a strange, strange feeling sitting across the table from somebody that feels after, you know, like I said, a veteran, an attorney, a successful businessman, the timing of the recession, the way it all shook out at the end of this life where he should, it had he met his goals and stuff, would have felt pretty accomplished, was instead feeling like a failure. Uh, use those words. And now with the reverse mortgage, we're able to stop the house payment. Quality of life has improved, saving some money. No fear now that when he dies that her life is going to you know go down the toilet. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty liberating thing. Um, to me... That's the quintessential reverse mortgage story, right? Who are the other people that you think of when you think about a reverse mortgage? Medical bills have gotten too high. In-home care has come in and things are just out of control. And just stopping the house payment is like, it's kind of what, what it's resorted to. It's what we think about. People yeah. that are people teetering their, on the edge. Their, their monthly income doesn't meet their monthly needs, their monthly out. Outflow, of, or of or money. that equation would be radically changed if the house payment stopped. Right. Okay. Um, so what I wanted to do is say, hey, if that's you, if you're drowning right now, and you you know you own a home, got equity in your home, and by the way, it doesn't need to be paid off. Typically, it's about a fifty percent loan to value. So if you have a five hundred thousand dollars house in slow, and you owe two hundred fifty thousand dollars on it, you may, and you're over sixty two, you may be able to get a reverse mortgage and make the house payment stop. Many people think that your home needs to be free and clear to get a reverse mortgage. Some people are saying, well, I don't need the money. Like you got a reverse mortgage so that you could get sent a thousand bucks a month, not only not have a house payment, but have an income stream. You don't have to get that either. That's not a requirement of a reverse mortgage. You can elect not have an ongoing income stream. 
So, um, but so what I wanted to talk about was a little bit of a retooling here for people about a couple of other folks that are getting reverse mortgages today, and I want to tell you about it. One is um, reverse mortgages are now becoming a common part of estate planning. What are you living off today? You're selling stock, cashing in mutual funds, your money market account, you know, to take your monthly draw. Taking that monthly draw at what expense? Because over here, if you got a reverse mortgage, especially if you're selling any assets to be able to service the debt of the mortgage, right? Over here, you might just be able to use your house for a reverse mortgage. Now you no longer have to liquidate those monies that are invested in the market. Potentially, they're able to then grow and outpace what the cost is of the reverse mortgage. So it's becoming an estate planning tool. The wealthy now that have plenty of money and plenty of assets are utilizing the reverse mortgage as a way to um, balance their wealth and have a little bit more control over their investments and their their day-to-day cash flow. Um, and financial planners are, are recommending now that reverse mortgages be utilized in estate planning ways. Uh, another interesting thing about it is that if you have a reverse mortgage, the interest on it is deferred. So you lose your tax write-off this year, right? If you get a reverse mortgage, you're not paying interest. It's being added to your loan. And upon your death or inability to to occupy the property anymore, now it needs to be refinanced or sold. And that interest becomes pay and doable in a single event. So you might be paying a few years worth of mortgage interest in one shot on a day or your estate maybe in one shot settling up with fifty dollars or $100,000 worth of um, mortgage interest right off then. It's got to pay it, but guess what? Now in that one calendar year, when your estate is settling, there's going to be estate taxes and fees and everything go along with it. But during that one single year too, there's going to be the payment of that lump sum of mortgage interest, which can offset some right of the off. taxes and change the basis of the equation pretty substantially. This is another reason why estate planners are using this as a tool. Okay. Otherwise, you write off, you know, five, six thousand dollars this year against your income, which, like we were talking earlier in the show, maybe you have non-taxable Social Security. So you're not, you're not even getting the tax benefit of having the interest write off. And then when your house sells, there's you know a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of equity, and now there's an inheritance tax, and you kind of pissed away the interest write off for all these years where you didn't have a good way of even offsetting it. If you had just let it accrue, now it would offset the inheritance tax in that one event and could radically change the way that that estate settles. So, um, by the way, I need to throw out here right now, again, I'm not a financial planner. I don't, I'm not a tax guy. I don't know enough about all this stuff. If you're contemplating it, all I can say is go get that help and get that advice. But I wanted to have this conversation just sort of say, hey, people, reverse mortgages are no longer just for the destitute. It's not for the person that didn't do it right and has concern that their wife or husband that survives is not going to be able to pay the bills. It's not just for people that now have in-home care and the budget stretched so thin they can't pay the bills. It's, it's now being used by the wealthy as an estate planning tool. And I just wanted to let you know. Check that out. Look into that. It can be a very powerful thing. Um, and then additionally, I wanted to tell you guys about another kind of people that are using reverse mortgages now um, to just sort of upset the whole mix. 
Uh, a reverse mortgage, if you're over the age of 62, again, I mean, that's your ticket to be able to do this in general. You can buy a home with a reverse mortgage. So you can buy a home with 50% down, you know, depending on how the deck's stacked. Maybe you sell your house over in Bakersfield or whatever, and it leaves you with 300000 bucks, and you've always wanted to retire and slow, but you can't really afford the $600,000 house because you can't service three hundred grand of debt. Come on. Do a reverse mortgage. Throw your money down. Get a 50% down payment. Now you can get a 50% reverse mortgage, and guess what? That house has, you know, you're not paying the mortgage on it. So same kind of thing. Um, it's a it's a new way. So I'm I'm basically wanting to open people's eyes to the the new way of the reverse mortgages. It's not just for people that didn't do it right or didn't plan accordingly. It's not those old myths. I mean, I've long said every time we talk about reverse mortgages, I've long said it's the most misunderstood loan that exists today. Oh, when I die, the bank gets my house. Nah, that's not true. You never lose title to your home. Never, under any circumstances. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. How not? The bank took over your mortgage. Well, what the bank did was, the reason they call it a reverse mortgage is that on a conventional mortgage, which at, at times is termed a forward mortgage, you're loaned some money. You begin paying interest on it, and then you pay back a portion of the principal each month as well as the interest that's owed, and over time, you're amortizing that debt away. On a reverse mortgage, we loan you the money at an interest. Interest is either adjustable or fixed, but it's known which one you pick, and you then, the interest that's due is added onto the balance of the loan. So let's say you your parents get a reverse mortgage. Five years into it, um, unfortunately, parents pass away. So what happens to the house? Does the bank own the house? No, they don't. There's a loan on the house that... Titled to your parents. It's got to be settled, right? Yeah. So kid, the um, the heirs to the property, I can come in and refinance the house just enough to pay off the loan, just like any other loan. We get a payoff demand from them. Yeah, this loan started out at 300000 and now it's 340000 so when the heirs to the home go to refinance the debt, they got to pay that off, the 340. Well, maybe there's $340,000 in a money market account and then that's determined to be the best use. Hey, now you pay off the reverse mortgage, the whole thing's settled up and the kids still get an unencumbered house. All right, let's talk about an estate that doesn't have 340 grand in it. $600,000 house, $700,000 house, $800,000 house, whatever it is. The reverse mortgage is three hundred forty grand. Well, can the kid qualify for a mortgage? They could just get a normal mortgage and replace it, or maybe they have to sell the house, sell the eight hundred thousand dollars house, pays off the three hundred forty thousand dollars mortgage. Kid walks away with four hundred sixty thousand dollars to pocket. That's how it works. You don't lose. You don't give up the ownership to your home. You don't cut your heirs out of your home. So then I get these people say, yeah, but my goal was to leave my house paid off to my kids. This is the one thing I wanted to do. I wanted my kid, you know, I, I have an only child and I wanted my only child to inherit my house with no loan. Okay. But because you made that a priority and you socked that money away, paying it down, you don't have that money in the bank. 
You don't have that money in the stock market. You don't have that money in another asset. So at, at some point, we got to acknowledge that we're all sort of a balance sheet. We've got inflow and outflow. We got liabilities and assets, right? And they at the end of the day, they all got to settle up. So if you utilize a reverse mortgage because you want to not keep spending the money out of your money market account or your mutual fund or your 401k or whatever... And what you want to do instead is get a reverse mortgage, stop that payment, got an interest rate of 5% on that money. Now my mutual funds that are averaging 6 are undisturbed. I'm only making 1%. Hey, man, 1% for 20 years is a lot better than no percent for 20 years. So um, I, I think I've done an adequate job here. My goal was to suggest that it's a misunderstood loan. There's a variety of people that that should be at least learning about it so that they know that it's potentially a, a, an option. Very quickly, just basic qualification for a reverse mortgage. You have to be of age, which is 62. Mm-hmm. You have to occupy the property as your primary residence. Yep. Um, if you ever, I think what they give you, if you have to leave the property for some reason, they give you up to 12 months to get back into it. You know, but the idea is that you're occupied. That's your primary residence. You can't do it on a second home. You can't do it on an investment property. It's your primary residence. If they find that you're not living there, it's the note's going to be called due and payable. Yeah. Um, and you have to demonstrate an ability to be able to pay your insurance and property taxes. Right. Um, credit requirements for the program. Is it just like FHA where there's like a 500 or so minimum credit score or is the credit even come into play? We do provide credit now, and I think the idea there is that it's sort of it's it's, it's a more weird of that thing demonstrating the ability to pay the property taxes to make sure that we're not putting somebody into a predatory spot. Yeah, if you're already you know over a barrel in ten different areas of your life, and now all of a sudden you're getting a reverse mortgage too, with no likelihood of being able to maintain the property or keep it insured and taxed, um, we don't. That that falls into one of those predatory categories. So now we do. We want to make sure that you meet some minimum criteria, at least ability to keep all the balls in the air once the house payment stops or whatever. You can do an adjustable reverse mortgage or a fixed. With the adjustable comes a line of credit that grows each year so that you can access more money if you want it. Otherwise, you don't have, you to, don't take have to take it. Or you can do a fixed rate option, which has a lump sum at close, either to pay off the loan or get you, you know, some big stack of cash um, to do whatever it is that, you know, is driving your motivation to do this. Here's the deal. Uh, and I want to make this disclaimer, too. Um, I've been talking about reverse mortgages on this show for at least five years. In total, I've done like 10 of them. It's not a lot. I do have a new one this week that I'm working on. Um, another pretty interesting scenario a couple that's going through a divorce, and it's been the, the family home for 30 years. These people are actually in their um, 70s, and all of a sudden they want to have a divorce. And so they're figuring out, well, who gets what pension and what asset and what liability. Um, wife would like to stay in the home. She cannot qualify for a loan, and there is a loan. Husband doesn't want to be obligated to it anymore. So simply they say, sell the house. They've lived in this house for 30 years. They got it from his parents. It's where their family grew up. They don't want to get rid of it. So wife can get a reverse mortgage to be able to stay in the home. The only other option was to sell it. So um, interesting stuff. And again, so I brought that up. I've only really probably done 10 of these. You probably get the sense I know quite a bit about them. 
The reason I've only done 10 is not the right fit for everyone. If there's another loan program that's better for you or different, you know, whatever, we, we look at all of the options. This is certainly not something we're pushing. So, uh, but it's an available, an available loan product that might make all the difference to someone. If you guys want to learn more about that, give us a call this week at the office. It's 543-LOAN, which is 543-5626, or the web, centralcoastlending.com. Thanks much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Matt, for calling. Uh, Great dialogue. We will be back next week, I think, without Dan. Uh, But for another episode of Mortgage Matters, thanks, guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.